Hello and welcome to the Talking Guitar Podcast, brought to you by the North American Guitar, home of the world's finest guitars. In this episode, we caught up with fast-rising Northern Irish luthier Kieran McNally about setting up his workshop in the pandemic, his Foundation Series guitars, his collaboration with Shane Hennessy on a signature model OM, and some exciting new McNally builds that we have in the pipeline for 2021. Kieran, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Richard? I'm good, thank you. Welcome to the Talking Guitar Podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to speak to you. It's good to speak to you. I'm speaking to you from a very snowy London. Uh, how is it over in Northern Ireland at the moment? It's cold, but we haven't got the snow yet. Um, I say yet, but I'm sure it's on its way. But it's cold and it's very clear and sunny, so it's actually quite nice. And how's the beginning of 2021 been for you? It's been okay. Um, you know, weird time, I guess, for everybody. But I'm sort of in my new workshop now, and everything's kind of rocking and rolling nicely. So it was nice to come back after a, a, a good break at Christmas and sort of just get into a nice schedule of guitars and, and um, you know, got a nice order book of exciting things to work on. So... It's sort of been a, a good thing to come back to, really, to be honest. And I guess we'd better start at the beginning, really. Uh, for any of our listeners who aren't uh, familiar with you or your uh, guitars, um, how did you get started in the world of Luthery? So I, I guess I probably started playing guitar when I was 13 or 14. And then probably around the age of 15, 16, I sort of had the idea that you know, I'd like to play around with guitars and tinker with them a bit. So I started doing parts casters, um, actually on the kitchen table at home. And the story goes, I racked the kitchen table so much that my mom had to refinish it. I came home from school one day and the kitchen table was in the garden. And my mom was there with a the power sander, stripping the varnish off that I had scratched and scraped on the kitchen table. Um, so she was better at finish than me back then. Um, but I made these parts casters, and then just the natural progression was you don't really want to make the parts anymore. You want to you want to take more of it on and, and see how it goes. So there was a course, an evening course at a college in Belfast. Uh, so when I was still in school, then I, I was probably about 17 then, I would drive after school to this college in Belfast, and I started making then my first proper guitar. And I went in actually wanting to make copy of a Les Paul electric but the tutor there Sam said to me you know if you make an acoustic which is what most people there were making you probably find a lot of the skills transferable and you could probably make electric even on the side in your own time so I started then making a copy of a Martin Triple O because I was quite in there at Clapton at the time and that was his uh, signature Martin and I thought well if I want if I want one of those I'll probably have to make it so I started making that, and it took about a year, actually, to do that guitar. And in that course of the year, I just fell in love with the whole process. And that was, you know, I was 17, 18 at the time, and that kind of led me down the path of thinking, maybe I could actually do this. Maybe this is a job. Maybe this is some, you know, somebody's got to do this somewhere. Somebody's got to make these things. So then I discovered there was this course in London at a university, uh, London Metropolitan University, but it used to be known as London College of Furniture, uh, which 
probably know what instrument making world is quite well thought of in instrument making. And instrument making of all types, woodwind and um, piano tuning and all, all those kind of things. So I applied to go to this course and actually it was a degree course and I thought to myself, this big fancy degree instrument making course in London, here I am, I've only made one proper acoustic guitar, I'll probably be the least experienced person on this course. So I wasn't even sure if they would let me in, which was kind of, you know, I was, I went over for an interview and was a bit frightened of it and everything, but they let me in and then I discovered that actually I was the only person on the course who'd made any instrument before. So that was a bit wow. of a shock. But I had, um, I had rushed during the summer between finishing school and moving to London to do this course. I rushed to get this, this one acoustic finished and the tutor at Sam helped me and did, we did extra time to spread and all this kind of stuff. And, um, that, that guitar came with me then to London when I did this course. And actually, I used to take it back and forth from Belfast to London quite a lot. And um, I used to ship it to myself because I wouldn't trust the baggage handlers. So I would post it to myself and then I would get on the plane and it would arrive home the next day, the day after me. Then when I moved back a couple of years later, I'd, I'd sort of, you know, nothing bad had happened. So I thought, oh, it's fine. I'll just take it with me. So I took it on the baggage claim. And of course, the, the absolute final time, um, the baggage handlers just completely destroyed it. It was oh, no. all smashed in on the top and the, the bottom and all this kind of stuff. So that was my first acoustic guitar. So people sort of ask, where is your first guitar and all this kind of stuff? And they expect to see it hanging in the workshop sometimes when they visit. But I, I had it sort of hanging around like a dead weight for a long time because <laughs> I knew it would need a lot to fix. It probably would have needed a new top and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was hanging around for a long time and then eventually, I'm sure we'll get to this, but I moved to England then later again and looked at this guitar and I was just, had sort of developed as a guitar maker that I, I looked at it and realized it's not that good, to be honest. <laughs> Even if I fixed it, it's a bit of a rough, ready guitar and it had, you know, a lot of dings and scrapes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I took this kind of head staggers moment of saying, well, it's not good enough anyway. So I, I took the head and I started to do the bandsaw, took the machine heads off, uh, stripped the body in half through a bandsaw and threw it in the bin, basically, and sort of told myself that if I was ever going to make a guitar again, it had to be better than this, you know? So. I didn't want to be like sentimentally attached to the, the first guitar was it was just an exercise in learning to get to making better guitars. So that's the story of my first proper acoustic guitar, which is now in a landfill somewhere, <laughs> but I've still got the headstock here. <laughs> um, so that was that, but yeah. Do you just have it sat like a trophy on your desk? In a box somewhere here. Yeah. I probably shouldn't mount it on a nice little paperweight kind of style um, with number one written on it. But yeah, that's the story of, of number one. So I did did the course in Belfast, went to college in London, did that for a few years. Actually, in the summers in between, I went back and, and did uh, more guitar making at the course in Belfast as well. And then moved back to Belfast and sort of based in that college in Belfast for a year and did a kind of 
like apprenticeship course, maybe you'd call it that, but something like that. Made 13 of my own guitars that year. I kind of helped the school, you know, uh, was always there in the background making my own guitars if somebody else had a question. That kind of a role, maybe. I mean, that's an amount for any luthier to be proud of, but especially for one that's so uh, early in their career. Yeah. Well, I guess I just have a long history of working crazy hours as well. I'm getting obsessive about guitar making and sort of not really having any other hobby, to be honest. And, you know, I would say I'm very lucky I made my hobby my job, but now I'm trying to find a hobby, to be honest, <laughs> to try and sort of uh, not work as much. But, you know, when you're 23, 24, and you're really, really into something, it just doesn't matter if you, you know, work seven till 10 at night, just making guitars, and you sort of still go home feeling great about it. You know, there's no, you don't feel bad or ill, Ill will to yourself for having really enjoyed the day, uh, as I, as I was doing at the time. But, um, yeah, then at that time, I actually went traveling around the East Coast of America for about a month, I think, and um, was on a flight back and had a connection uh, from London back to Belfast. And um, I recognized George Lydon was on this on the same flight, and he was coming back from exhibiting at the Montreal Guitar Show. We had two Lydon guitar cases. His hand, which is kind of high, and you, um, it was him. And I thought to myself, I was so jet lagged at this stage. I just, I could barely keep my eyes open. I think I had slept in Heathrow for a little bit at that point as well. And I said to myself, well, if he sits near me, I'll have to say hello. You know, here I am, this uh, guy from Northern Ireland trying to make guitars, and those lines on the same plane. He's got to probably say hello. So it, the plane was actually pretty empty. It was just a kind of commuter flight. Belfast to London, and he ended up being on the same row, I think, even though most of the seats were empty. So I introduced myself and said hello and told him what I was doing, and I was still trying to learn how to make guitars and very into it and all that kind of stuff, and just made the contact. And I think probably six months later or something like that, I had heard that Loudon were hiring, and I sent him an email, so I sent him an email. I think it was on a Wednesday. I think he replied on a Thursday. I went in to have a look around on a Friday. And then I started working there on the Monday. And that was the start of working at Loudon, which I think I was there just under three years then. Wow, it's incredible that that came from a chance meeting. Yeah, I mean, it probably would have happened anyway, you know, um, as these things do. Uh, you know, if, if there had have been positions available there I think you probably would have gotten touched even if I hadn't met him before but um, yeah it is funny how these things happen that we were both on the other side of the world and met on the way back it's the same place yeah and you said that you were there for, for about three years or so uh, just under three years I think yeah and initially when I started because I had a bit of experience making guitars um, I, I was kind of useful to different areas of the production. You know, I could, not that I was, you know, really good at all of it, but I could help probably different people when they needed help, you know? So it was, it was really good in those early days for me because I got to maybe jump around a bit and get a little bit of experience with lots of different things. Um, but then as it sort of progressed, 
and things sort of happened there that maybe a people, few people had left. It became more that I was maybe getting boxed in to just working on certain areas in a more repetitive fashion. And that kind of, I kind of lost love of it then really, to be honest. And, and that's when I sort of started looking elsewhere. And you know, I was still pretty young at the time, probably 25 or something then. And another interest of mine was coffee. So I kind of thought to myself, maybe I should get out of this for a while and just try something different. So I applied with a coffee roasting company in Belfast, then left Loudon and started roasting coffee. Yeah, I was wondering how the time out roasting coffee kind of came about because it's a bit of a departure from guitar building, really. It was, but you know what? I absolutely loved it. And that company, they're called Bailey's, based in Belfast. They're, um, it was a fantastic place to work. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely great bunch of people. And I learned so much. And one of the things as well that surprised me is the kind of analogies that I could find between guitar making and something like a coffee roasting business where you bring in this exotic raw material from some far distant part of the world and you process it into this premium product that goes to an end user. And, and you know, you have in the way that you have guitar enthusiasts who are on the internet talking about it and, you know, this kind of stuff and people doing lots of YouTube videos and reviews. You have all that for coffee as well. Um, exotic hipster obsession that goes on in coffee as well and yeah the analogies really are there so um but i really enjoyed it making or working at the coffee company i still i'm still pretty obsessed with coffee and several liters a day to be honest but um i, I always tell people the most important machine in my workshop is the coffee machine because without it nothing else gets done to be honest um yeah i think that's the case in my house as well um so did you just, just completely stop building guitars whilst you were uh, working with coffee but while i was at the coffee company and i'd left Loudon, i sort of i tried to stay away from guitar making <laughs> i tried to sort of say you know what just take a break you're young and you don't have to do anything or do you don't have to be on a path to do anything you know you can just see where to go for now in probably six months, I found myself buying forward. Just really stopped myself and couldn't resist it. So then I set up a little workshop. I was living in Belfast then at home and I was just making my own guitars in my spare time. Well, I was probably still making five or six a year doing repairs around Belfast as well. And, um, I was selling my own guitars to a shop in Dublin then. And um, the guy who owns that shop, Owen. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a friend of uh, Teenags as well. He's always been a bit of a champion of mine. Kind of used to always, anytime I'd bring him a guitar, you know, he would say, "What, what are you doing roasting coffee?" <laughs> <laughs> you need to get back to making guitars. You know, yeah. no matter how much free coffee I would bring him, he would still say, "You need to be bringing me more guitars." You know, <laughs> um, so he at the time then encouraged me to exhibit at the Holy Grail Guitar Show in Berlin. Yeah, that's a that's a great platform for, for any of you. I was not sure about it because at the time, I didn't feel like a professional guitar maker. I was, it wasn't my living and I was doing it part-time and I did it and Owen came with me actually to the show and helped me out. And um, 
that's where I met Alistair Akin then, and we sort of hit it off by meeting at the show. And I, I guess that's a less of a chance meeting than uh, <laughs> when you met George Loudon, but uh, still, a, still a great uh, place to meet him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you meet so many guitar makers there, and and one of the things I would say, mm-hmm. you know, Alistair share is a real kind of pragmatic approach to guitar making. We're I would say neither of us are really about the kind of ethereal, magical stuff. You know, we're we're more about pragmatic solutions to making a good guitar and looking back at the history of guitar making and look what worked for, for the great guitars that have been made in history and maybe not reinventing the wheel, but just making a really, really good version of, of that, you know. So we hit it off based on that kind of guitar making. Um, we had a great time at the show, a little group of us there that had kind of met. Then I went back to Belfast and just kind of continued on with what I was doing. I was working at the coffee company. At that time then, I had stopped roasting the coffee because I wasn't very good at it uh, and kept setting it on fire. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'd gotten into more kind of, again, pragmatic things like the... Um, management of the production and the purchasing and uh you know we had a lot of big projects that were ongoing at the time and kind of being involved in those and i actually really really enjoyed that kind of organizational stuff as well so alistair knew i was doing that and i think must have been about a year later then he he sort of got in touch saying you know i think acting guitars has an opportunity to grow we've got a lot of interest can I ask your opinion on things? You know, he knew I'd worked for a guitar company. He knew I was the production manager of another industry, but he knew I was a guitar maker still on the side, making my own guitars. So I guess he thought I was someone that would be worth asking these things. So he sent me questions and I would reply and what I thought would work. And then eventually he just sent me a message saying, well, I think you should come and do it here. So that was the start of that. And then, I guess over the next three or four months. From that point, I visited him in Canterbury and his workshop and talked about what might be done and all those kind of things. And and then I moved there in January 2018, I think, to help Alistair. Um, and when I started, it was just me and Alistair in the workshop, actually. And I guess when, we, when I left... Um, which was just before COVID then, just around COVID. Did we have six people working there, I think? Yeah. Um, and we went from making 80 guitars a year to making around 300 guitars a year. And, wow. you know, I would say 300 better guitars too. You know, to make more guitars is not to make bad guitars. It's, you know, you can decide to make better ones too. So... Um, that was a lot of fun and we did a lot of a lot of good stuff during that time too but i guess in that period you know you always come home when you visit home at christmas and all these things but i kind of knew i was probably going to ultimately move back home anyway so i think in january of last year i came to visit tina you did yeah and um at that time i had decided on alistair knew and everybody i can knew i was going to leave Back in at the end of that year, so I was gonna. That year was gonna be sort of 
helping them and me also trying to maybe get ready to set up on my own in the meantime. The plan was to, to move back uh, to Northern Ireland here in November of 2020 because I would be turning 30 in December. I sort of had this mental idea that if I wasn't going to do it before 30, I might not ever do it. And, you know, a little part of me, not that I haven't had good experiences working for other people, a little part of me just had this thing of, you know, be nice not to ever work for anyone else past 30, you know, paid my dues and now I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, but COVID had other plans. <laughs> yeah, it has for many people, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this before, how you know it disrupted so many plans for a lot of people, but it also brought forward a lot of plans for a lot of people too. And I did in my case because when the lockdowns hit, you know, Alex and I were talking a lot about what this would mean and all this kind of stuff. And you know, I think I realized that I was probably going to be sitting around in Canterbury, not doing a lot during COVID. And, you know, it was scary at the time too. I think that's the other thing to remember. This It was a scary thing. Nobody knew yeah. what was going to happen. And I just wanted to, to be at home, to be honest. That was another part of it. I just wanted to move home. So I decided that I would do that. And if it meant that I started my own thing sooner, so be it. If it meant... The other thing we didn't know was how the guitar market would be affected. So I also didn't know if I was even going to start my own thing because maybe... We didn't know how things would sit, but I got back to Armagh here and had a lot of interest in guitars, a lot, a lot of interest, and had the help of my brother and other family members here to set up my new workshop, basically, which is two doors down from my brother's business. Um, so I've got neighbours here, but um, yeah, just went hammer and tongs, basically, from June of last year, I got the keys to this workshop. And I basically worked at least 12 hours a day for three months to install all the equipment and machines and spray booth, get all that up and running, but also make all my molds. And actually, I made five guitars. <laughs> it was three months too. And, crazy as well, isn't it? Yeah. and uh, But it's all rocking and rolling now, and I'm sort of in a nice um, rhythm. Uh, just sort of making guitars and, and um, you know, I would just say about how I make guitars, you know, I know that seems like a lot to people and, you know, like I made 13 when I was still learning a year and all that kind of stuff. It does seem like a lot of guitars in, in the luthery kind of world. Um, but I think people have to remember that I sort of come from that world too, but my experience is in production guitars as well. So while I'm an individual guitar maker, I come at it from the, the mindset of a production manager. Yeah. I might be the only person I'm managing now, but <laughs> I still <laughs> apply those rules. I have uh, I have um, schedules that I follow myself and I've put in place that um, mean that I make guitars efficiently, um, but also work to maintain and improve quality constantly. The other thing that sort of allows me to uh, make these kind of numbers of guitars is that I always design my guitars with the making in mind. And I, I design the guitars with a customer in mind, with a section of the guitar market in mind. You know, it's 
I think sometimes the opposite happens. People design the guitar they want, and then they try and find the market. But I'm maybe more, like I said, I come from a pragmatic kind of guitar world, and I I want my guitars to be in a certain part of the market some, sometimes and to appeal to certain people. And um, Part of that, for instance, is value, and value for money. It's really, really important concept to me is that I can still make guitars that um, on a monetary value actually compete with some of the big factories so you can still get a guitar from the individual guitar maker that might be the same price as a, as a big factory guitar but then I also have these options that are designed into my process that means people can still really customize my guitars to quite a high level actually and, you know, it will obviously put the price up to something beyond those kind of um, brackets I talked about. But I, I really like being at, at the price point I'm at. And one of the reasons for that is I think it makes me accessible to a bigger range of people. And it means that, you know, there's a lot of guitar players out there who don't know about the whole year world. They, they're, they're just into guitars and they're into music. And maybe they would stumble across my brand, not knowing the luthier world, but maybe my prices to them still don't seem crazy. And you know, a working musician who's just playing in bars five nights a week or something, my guitar is still within reach. I've had people buy guitars telling me that it's a collection piece. I've had people buy guitars telling me that uh, they're not going to touch the guitar, they're leaving it in their will family members which is an incredible um you know humbling privilege kind of thing yeah nothing really better than seeing someone play your guitar and make music with it so i really want to stay as close to that as i can so this whole kind of drive to be an efficient one-man band and uh, provide value where i can um is really important and i think value value is a word I use but I'll often find I have to explain it because value doesn't mean cheap value means that it's worth what you paid for it and that's what's really really important to me well I think that's a great place for us to introduce the foundation series really because uh, you've got five different models there uh, and each one available in a set combination of uh, woods for the back and sides and for the top um, so, you know, how did you come to, um, f you know, to, to realize those five models, but also the wood combinations that you offer within that? Yeah. So the foundation series, like you say, it's, it's my way to have set models that are maybe more um, appealing to people who aren't into the literary world and customizing. It also means that I can get, um, high quality guitars into dealers that aren't overly customized that maybe people are willing to buy, you know, um, off the rack rather than a custom order. Um, it's, it's a way for me to kind of code them with names and models that make them recognizable. It's, it's not a revelationary thing. There are other companies that do this. I don't know if Luthiers do it in the same way. Um, but basically there's 35 possible combinations and they're, they're all the same price basically. And the 35 comes from uh, seven wood combinations and five body shapes. So my five body shapes are a parlor, an S, an 
OM, a dreadnought, and a jumbo. So the, the Parler and the S are basically the same body shape, which is my take on like a Martin Double O, Gibson L Double O kind of cross, that kind of size of guitar. The uh, Parler version has a 12 fret join, the short scale, and the S version has a 14 fret join, the short scale. And then we go on to the OM. The OM is what you would expect in shape terms from an OM, but it's actually a little bit bigger than a traditional OM in its uh, width and its depth. And that's my attempt to sort of make it a little bit more Celtic. Um, then we go on to the Dreadnought, which is pretty much in shape, just a completely traditional Dreadnought, because I am not messing with that. <laughs> and I think it would be sacrilege to do so. I love Dreadnoughts, but I, when I like a really good Dreadnought. It has to be really traditional for me. So that's what I do there. It's got my headstock and my braids and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit more modern, maybe, but still pretty, pretty traditional and voiced pretty traditional. So actually, the dreadnought. The jumbo then is a very big guitar, <laughs> upper jumbo. And it's, it's a very big sound, very complex sound, very overtone rich, um, quite wide and bass heavy, high sustaining. And probably the most Celtic sounding of the guitars that I make. So that's your five body shapes. And then the wood combinations for the top, you can choose either cedar or sitka spruce. And then for the back and sides, you can choose uh, mahogany, walnut, or Indian rosewood. And actually also for the top, you can choose mahogany on an all mahogany guitar. Which makes for a nice little thing as well. So that's your seven wood combinations times your five body shapes. And there's still quite a lot of choice within that as well. I mean, you uh, you offer some other options as well, don't you? Foundation series, you can also choose a couple of different nut widths, and it's still included. And you can also choose a couple of different finish options, um, matte satin and gloss as well, and it's also included. There's nothing to stop people adding on the other options too. I'm not, it's not a restrictive thing. If somebody wanted a sunburst or a bevel or you know, slotted headstock, you can add those things. It's just the normal price as well. It's it's just I'm trying to package up a few models in a certain way that um, will appeal to certain people who aren't into the customizing guitars world. But those who are can take the Foundation Series as their base and also add on what they're looking for as well. I think some people, when they are looking to uh, order a, a guitar that's that's being built for them, um, you know, they'll sometimes look to the luthier to um, kind of guide them, or they'll they'll, they'll come to us and, and look for us to to guide them on um, what's best for their needs. And, and I think it's great that your Foundation Series guitars have that um, those kind of set options there initially that that you as the luthier have kind of um set out to um showcase your guitars in but also that people can uh within that have have choice and if they want to go for something a little bit more customized they can have that as well like some more modern appointments like arm bevels uh, a man's a wedge or a sound port um what do you think that those more kind of modern uh innovations uh bring to your uh your guitars so I'll, I'll come back to this kind of pragmatic thing and this kind of designing guitars for the market, designing guitars to be made. 
if there's any option available on a McNally guitar, it's because I believe it's worth having. I'm not, I won't be driven by what the cool thing is at the moment. You know, it's, if, if I have a, if I offer a bevel on my guitar, it's because it makes it easier to play. <laughs> and if people want it to be easier to play, they can have that option. The Manzer Wage is fantastic as well because you're keeping a lot of air in the box, but it makes it easier to play. Soundport is great because if, if you're the type of player who's maybe uh, just playing at home or playing for themselves, it's like having a monitor that you're getting more of the sound at you and you're getting more intricacies of the sound directly at you, kind of like you're sitting in front of the guitar and, instead of behind it. So, yeah, I do offer quite a lot of options, but they're, you know, again, I, I'm not the originator of those either, but they're things that I think are really worth having. And when you add them into the mix, they make for really beautiful guitars as well. And for some people, it's not just about the practicalities. They want to bevel because it looks really nice. You know, and that, that's fine too for people who want those things. But um, I, I don't really... Sometimes I, I think about adding things to the guitars, but then I, what I do is I imagine a, an imaginary customer and I think about this person and I think, does this guitar add, does this option add anything to this guitar for that customer? Would it make or break whether they buy it or not? Would they pay for it, but in five years be thinking, I really wish I hadn't paid for it? Or would they, in five years, think, I, I'm so glad this guitar has it. Uh, I might have even sold the guitar if it didn't have it. Those are my considerations when I sort of gather options and, and what to offer people. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a good place for us to talk about the collaboration with Shane Hennessy, um, which resulted in the signature model OM. How did the, that collaboration come about? I actually remembered this recently, but I first seen one of Shane's first YouTube videos many, many years ago, and I think Sheen was probably 16 or 17 at the time, and I might have been 18 or something, and um, he was playing just this great fingerstyle style guitar and had this YouTube video, and I knew that he was Irish, and um, that was about it. I didn't really think much more of it, but over the course of the years, Sheen developed as a player and was gaining recognition, and maybe... Alongside that, separately, I was developing as a guitar maker and sort of getting a bit of recognition too. And um, I was posting photos of guitars and all this kind of stuff. And I would always see Shane comment on things I was posting and like things. And he would ask me questions about the boys and all this kind of stuff. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought there's really nobody better to represent you know, my guitars in a way too. And um, sort of just put that to Shane and, and suggested maybe he could do something. And initially he was a bit wary because people will know Shane's style of playing maybe and it's it's, it's fast and polyphonic and percussive. And the type of guitar that suits that playing is not necessarily what you see in most luthier guitars. I think Shane knew that. You know, he tried a lot of guitars. Lots of luthiers would approach Shane even after shows and stuff to you know he's in different parts of the world you know we try this guitar and and um you know seeing knows what he needs and i'm sure he would say to those people this is a fantastic guitar but it's not going to work for me and that's what he conveyed to me as well as i'm sure your guitars are great i'm not sure they'll work for me 
So that actually just spurred me on even more to kind of think, well, be really interested in trying to make something for you and actually trying to make the guitar that you need rather than, you know, me telling you what you need. And again, it comes back to this whole thing of being a guitar maker that's driven by music. You know, it's, it all comes back to music, really. So um, I sort of made suggestions as to what we would do and what how I would make a guitar that might suit you. And I said, yeah, well, let's let's give it a go and see how it goes. So that was actually around the same time when I first visited Teenag. That was around January of last year that we first started doing all that. And before COVID, Shane visited me in England and tried got to try quite a few guitars that I had at the time. And we talked about what would work for him and various things. So I thought about making a prototype for him. Prototype basically became then the final guitar. There's a few little differences, the pickup system being one, but um, the guitar basically has a has a more kind of fundamental snappier kind of sound. Uh, it wouldn't be maybe as high sustaining and high you know, high overtone kind of as my other guitars because. You know, I often like it to like a piano, you know, the way Shane plays, you're not going to sit down at the piano and hold the sustainer pedal for the whole time. You know, he needs clarity because he's so polyphonic. You need to be able to hear every component of that. And the way you get that is with, you know, uh, probably a more traditional sounding guitar, something a bit more fundamental. So we set about making that type of guitar and then that led us to the OM, which has a Florentine cutaway. It has um, thicker and heavier bracing, has thicker and heavier sides as well, uh, which sort of helps you any sort of percussive. The, the bracing is actually all interlocked on the inside as well. Now that's not it's not really a revolutionary thing either, but um, in some ways it differs from my other guitars because she and so percussive it helps future proof that bracing, and uh, it's also lacquered on the inside, which was the first for me as well because she and normally would travel so much with the guitar, so it kind of helps that. We chose very lightweight woods as well, because he's going to have it around his neck for several hours a day. You know, it can't be a dead weight either. So all those types of features. Um, it also has the feedback buster, which again, Shane would play with most times when he's playing live, so um, I kind of wanted to make a feature of it rather than just be this thing that you know is afterthought more than anything. So we 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 made one out of the same wood as the back and sides. So if you're looking right at the guitar, it kind of looks like you're looking through the sound hole a little. Uh, but what we also did then was uh, Shane's kind of logo would be a harp. So we um, we made up our own design of harp, which takes some elements from some other McNally uh, inlaid designs. Principally the Celtic Ivy. This on the feedback buster and sort of made a feature of the feedback buster. I think it actually really ties the whole thing together. Yeah. And I'm trying to sort of say, you know, there's nothing wrong with using the feedback buster. If that's what you need to get nice, clear stage presence and, and uh, the type of sound that she needs, nothing wrong with using it, you know. And what we set out to make was a stage guitar. So only right that it has that feedback buster. Um, it's included with all of, all of the Shane Hennessy guitars. The other thing is it comes in a, in a mono gig bag instead of a normal hard case that I would uh, send. I don't know if you know the mono gig bags, but they're incredible. They are, yeah. 
the the other main feature then is the pickup. So um, Shane put me in touch with Udo Rossner, who was a founder of AR, but is now working on his own and makes his own apps and um, has started to then make pickups again as well. And Udo is very well thought of in that world. Um, his apps would be used by all people like Shane and Tommy Emanuel and you know all these people around the world. Right. Yeah. And they're they're really on the up as well. You'll see them in a lot of places now, and a lot of places selling them. So um, when we started talking about pickups, you know, Shane said, "I, really, I think Ludo is the man here, and he's probably the only man who's going to be able to do what I need and get the sound that he wants." And um, so Udo sent us prototypes, and we put those in some of the guitars that Shane had, and how to improve them going forward, and all those kind of things. It, it's got a floating microphone that's attached to the side. And then it's got an undersaddle transducer, and then it's it's you can blend those, and um, it's also got side mounted controls, which you know, again, it kind of looks a bit more like a hark back to maybe eighties guitars and you know stuff like that, and people maybe not like it. Actually, I think when you see it up close, it looks really high quality because it's this nice brushed steel. Um, but that's just. That's about practicality. You know, Shane needs that on the guitar when he's on a live setting. He needs to be able to control the sound then and there. You know, he can't be taking his hand into the sound hole to make a little adjustment as, you know, lots of pickup systems have moved in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. For good, for good reasons, but that's not what Shane needs. So the pickup has a side mounted control there. Um, um, and he's now used that and he has another guitar from the studio model. Which is a bit more like one of my regular guitars. He used both of those to record his latest album, uh, which is called Edercule, which is um, it's it's kind of original music, but it's based on traditional Irish themes and and, and music and stuff. So, well worth checking out, and you'll get to hear Nelly guitars the whole way through the, the album. That's so um, yeah, it's great to have Shane out there putting putting the guitars on that kind of level and showing people that these are real working things as well and you can use them to create and be be a musician with them it's great to see that you've worked with shane uh, on a guitar that's uncompromising and is something that he needs to um provide a solution for him when he is out on the road um and we've just received our first uh shane hennessy signature from you as well which uh is in our natural showroom now and um looks great and sounds great it's on our on our website right now we've filmed some demos on it with lance allen which uh sound incredible um and that's not all we have coming in from uh from you this year though is it we've got some more uh more guitars coming in in the spring and then um a bit later on in the year as well and it's great to see that you're uh, still building and, and uh, uh, able to produce guitars through the, the pandemic as well. Um, I know we were talking before about how you, you were saying uh, that uh, you're quite self-sufficient in the sense that raw materials come into the workshop and then a, a finished guitar leaves it at the end. And that the pandemic has kind of helped to solidify that self-sufficient uh, approach, I guess. Yeah, it's always been something that I've wanted to get towards, um, which is to just be, as you say, a bit maybe self-reliant and to, you know, I wouldn't be offended if anyone called me a control freak. 
it's uh, to, to control the whole process and to, you know, I find it really liberating to be the only person now who decides what's good enough and what's not. And, you know, to take the action to correct things or not correct things or, you know, as and when I see fit. And part of the whole uh, drive to, to put this workshop together in the middle of COVID and COVID really highlighted that, you know, if you're interdependent on supply chains with other people in terms of, you know, getting stuff made elsewhere or um, using services of other, other makers and stuff, um, you know, that might be fine during normal times, but when there's problems like this, uh, you're not really in full control anymore. And it might affect your your uh, your business, really, to be honest. So when I set up this, I was very clear that I, I like you say, I wanted wood to come in one end and finish guitars to leave at the other. And apart from maybe, you know, machine heads, frat wire, uh, strings, <laughs> you know, that's it. Wood comes in, guitars leave. And part of that is, you know, I've got I've got CNC and I've got laser. I spread my own guitars and I do all my own machining and things like that. And I even things like inlays, um, pearl inlays and stuff, they're all cut here and inlay here. And, um, you know, I try where it's possible, you know, we talk about the options. I try that, you know, when somebody orders a guitar, it's not, I'm not adding complexity. I'm adding, it's an option that I can do. And I've a jigged and tooled here. It means I can deliver for that customer and it doesn't, derail me in a schedule kind of way and it doesn't you know i don't sit back and think god i really wish that customer had an order that you know i can actually fulfill what people want as well um so yeah i mean i I'm back to that kind of pragmatic thing too you know i, I was trained at hand tools and i've done a lot a lot of hand tool work over the years for these different companies and stuff and you're interested the first three months of the course in london was just sharpening tools we weren't allowed to touch a piece of wood. We had to just sharpen chisels for three months. So um, I hated it at the time. I absolutely love sharpening chisels now. So very thankful that they actually forced us to do that. I've seen you've been posting on social media quite a bit about new uh, tone woods that you've been adding to your collection. Uh, what's new there and what are you looking forward to building with this year? Yeah, so I've, I've always got good stock of my sort of standard woods, Indian rosewoods, walnuts, mahogany, sick spruce, cedar, even things like Adirondack I've got quite a lot of and, and uh, all my fingerboards and bridges and necks. There's always a, about a year's worth there. But then on the side of that, I get to have fun sort of buying these unusual woods, which uh, people will customize into to more special guitars. Um, so at the minute, I've got Koa, Kokopolo, Liam Maple, Paddock, Purple Heart. I've got some Bird's Eye Maple. Um, Madagascar Rosewood, Honduras Rosewood, all those kind of things. But recently I got your Redwood for signboards. Just great. It's very vibrant, colorful wood. Just kind of sits somewhere between Sitka and Cedar. Um, but the best of both. Got lots more figured walnut, which is a really popular good for me actually um got some cuban mahogany as well bog oak got some more bog oak made, made a few guitars out of bog oak it's fantastic uh tone wood also got some african blackwood 
which is some very old stock African blackwood. And it'll probably be the last I ever get because it's becoming so, so hard to get now. And I'd be surprised if that wasn't CITES listed by the end of this year, to be honest. Um, I've got a couple of sets, which is very old. Uh, and I, did I get anything else very recently? I, I did also get my first personal stash of Brazilian rosewood. Um, I've used Brazilian rosewood in, in sort of the companies and stuff I work for. But I was on the fence about whether I would ever use it on my own guitars. and um, But I got the opportunity to get some that was certified. So I felt like it was it was probably worth having. Um, one of the reasons I didn't use it up till now was because I have this kind of feeling of stewardship towards these kind of really rare woods. And I, I you know, something that every guitar maker will probably struggle with, but you have this kind of confidence problem and this, you know, imposter syndrome. You know, you're not really a guitar maker for, for a very, very long time. You know, I'm, I must be 13 or 14 years now since I made my first guitar, probably. But um, it takes that long to really feel like maybe you are doing this to a good level and that would justify using these types of wood. You know, there'd be nothing worse than that, that really precious wood being made into something that wasn't worthy of it. So I've sort of held off those really exotic woods until now, until I feel like you know, I think I could do this justice. I think the customer will be happy with what I do. And, um, you know, I think I'm in this for the long haul now as well, so that the, the long-term value of that instrument will hold and be worth it as well. So, yeah, got got Brazilian Rosewood recently yeah, for that too. So there's a lot there's a lot in the cupboard, in the wood vault, I call it. <laughs> At the minute, there's probably 60 guitars worth or so of wood. In there at the moment. I like to just open yeah. the cupboard and, and have a sniff every now and again. I bet it smells great, doesn't it? Um, and so, as well as the uh, foundation series that we've got coming in in the spring, uh, we've got a couple of other details coming in later in the year, uh, including our first dreadnought from you. Yeah. So, I say you've got you've got the foundation series coming in, but then we wanted to kind of um, go a bit the opposite and do a few special guitars. Yeah. with teen eggs so um yeah and how, how do we what do we get for you for the first dreadnought that was you know a consideration and like i said dreadnought is a, is a precious thing to me <laughs> i love them and i love that traditional american style of guitar so when we were speccing this special one really it's just an upgraded wood kind of dreadnought it's still going to have the simple uh, trim and it'll be quite tasteful and elegant, but it'll have an Adirondack top and a Madagascar rosewood back inside, so a bit more, you know, harking to maybe like a pre-war kind of um, combination of a guitar. And other than that, it'll just have like a color logo for it, so it'll be I'm sure it'll be an absolute canon of a thing, but it'll just be nice and elegant and tasteful. The OM though will be totally bling and <laughs> exotic, so it's going to have sinker red with soundboard, um, green ebony back and sides. We're also going to do a Manzer wedge, soundport, bevel, and the bevel, the bindings, and the rosette will all be figured walnut, uh, which will put a bit of bling in there. And it'll also have abalone all around the top, and um, 
Apple logo and bound fingerboard and bound headstock. So it'll be probably one of the most actually um, deluxe guitars I've made, to be honest. So very, very excited for those guitars. And yeah, they'll, they'll be around September, I think. I'm looking forward to those coming in and I'm looking forward to us uh, being able to document the build of those guitars with uh, a build thread on our on our blog. Um, so uh, those are those are really exciting. I guess my last question is one that I quite like to ask Luthiers is if if you had to build your dream McNally guitar, uh, what would it be? This is difficult because and I do get asked this. Um... I get asked this by customers sometimes, you know, they say, you know, build me what you would build. And it it really, it's hard to put a, put a finger on sometimes because I have a guitar for every mood. Um, for me personally, you know, there are times I'll spring up a dreadnought and it's nice, plain, simple thing, but it's a sort of banjo killer style cannon of a dreadnought and I just want it in my life. And then I'll, I'll sort of spring up maybe like a, OM with a, a redwood or cedar top that's very rich and high sustaining and very complex and you kind of sit and play and you get lost a bit of creativeness too and you think well this is great as well so I think there's always a guitar for what the buyer is and what the buyer is going to use it for and it's more about finding what that is and um, fulfilling that need ticking that box for someone I, I would be on the more plain side when it comes to decoration, personally. I think most guitar makers are when you speak to them. They're sort of, they're more about the nuts and bolts of the thing and the kind of service, rather than it's, um, you know, they're more about the, the check being cashed rather than the check being written kind of thing. It's, it's, you know, if it's got the tone and the playability, bling doesn't really matter. That being said, I think you can get beauty in uh, design rather than in decoration. So I think when you have a have like a nice simple guitar that maybe just has very simple simple rosettes, it's the beauty of its form rather than uh, throwing trinkets on it. You know, it's it's it, um, it has a natural beauty like a classic car or something, you know, that doesn't just transcends all those things. But its beauty comes from its purpose as well. It's, you can't unlink these things from guitars. It's, that's why people ask me where my logo comes from. It's a Celtic try not. And um, it's nothing to do with a family crest or anything, as people usually think. But it's, uh, I, I always thought of, you know, there's three main things about a guitar that have to be right. And that's what makes one good guitar, is that it has to play well, it has to sound good, and it has to be beautiful. And those three things are what makes special guitar, and that's why I tried to find, like, a, a three-element logo. Now, I don't do a good enough job at explaining that logo to people, but that's that's the purpose of it. Um, so I would go for something more simple, probably. Uh, you know, probably a spruce mahogany dreadnought, or uh, I like the parlors. I like, I really like the old mahogany moment. It sort of comes down to the sort of ethos of my guitars in the first place. Yeah, and having played your guitars, I think your your ethos of, of being that middle point between uh, a, a Celtic and an American uh, style acoustic guitar is uh, is spot on, really. 
it's this kind of sense of stewardship towards me and, and what I do for the, the player and, and that I try my best to hit the mark that they need, you know, rather than maybe what I think they need. I think there's sometimes a disconnect. You know, I'm trying to always go back to the player and work from what they say and tailor to them, hopefully, um, which has led me to try and find this versatile guitar that sits somewhere in the, in the two. Then also then, it's not just about the tone of that uh, versatile guitar and the mix of those two styles. Coming back to the, you know, the three, three-tiered logo that I have, it's okay to say that the tone is a certain way, but I think to tie it all together, the visual of my guitars has to span between Celtic and American. So they have to have a little bit of a nod to both, you know, so the shapes are a little bit American, but they've maybe got some more curviness in certain places that makes them a little bit more Celtic. You know, my bridge is maybe a Celtic uh, profile shape, but it's scalloped a bit like traditional American bridge, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, I've got a Celtic logo, but it's done in a nice traditional decal. So that's a bit <laughs> American. And, you know, trying to put one foot in each camp sometimes, but that's been a bit of a challenge for me over the years, actually, to try and aesthetically tailor the guitars to represent what they are tonally. I think I'm starting to get there now. I think when people look at the guitars, it's starting to tell them about what they're going to experience when they play it more, which was always a challenge for me uh, because people would, when when maybe my guitars looked a bit more Celtic, and I've made some traditional looking guitars too, maybe when they looked a bit traditional, the, the tone surprised them more because it didn't match what it looked like so much. Because I think now I'm hitting the mark more, so it, it lines up better. Well, Kieran, there's no doubt that we're incredibly proud to represent your guitars here at the North American Guitar. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today and uh, stay safe and I uh, wish you a healthy and happy rest of 2021. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. For more information on the world's finest guitars, please visit our website at thenorthamericanguitar.com.